I'm reading this morning from the book of Esther, chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of the King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Ada. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, 
gladness and honour. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Esther 9. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Hamashta, Arisei, Aridei, and Vaisatha the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the 10 sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. 
That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word pure. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. I want to begin by talking about this concept of storytelling that Aristotle talked about. And... Um, he had this word that he used to, to describe the perfect 
shape of a story, um, and that's the word peripateia. He writes about this in his book uh, Poetics. And he defined peripateia as a change by which um, the action veers around to its opposite, subject always to our rule of probability or necessity. So it's what happens in a story when a main character thinks they are succeeding and then that they are winning and then suddenly, when we least expect it, they discover they're in massive trouble, that they are losing. And it can work the other way. The, the hero thinks they are being defeated and then they have victory all of a sudden. And Aristotle says when this happens, uh, the story has maximum in- impact. And this can happen in events too in history. You can have historical events that um, have that peripatea shape. Uh, for example, right now... Um, Many of us are noticing in the news um, all the talk about the upcoming American election and all the drama around that. But if you think back to the 2016 American election, for both the Trump supporters and the Clinton supporters, everyone including uh, the New York Times and the CNN and everyone thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. But at the last second, on the day of the election, the polls started coming in and it went the exact opposite way. And so for Trump supporters, it was like a joyful comedy. And for Clinton supporters, it was a terrible tragedy. And so peripatetic stories have a kind of a U-shape. So a U-shape, if they're um, a comedy or if they end happily, they start off looking like a disaster and end happily. And they have an upside down U-shape if they are a tragedy. So it looks like it's going well and then suddenly it ends terribly. When an author does this and uses this device, Aristotle says that they're they're turning everything upside down for the characters in the story and for the readers or the audience who live vicariously through these characters. And so the story of Esther that we've been looking at has this shape. And last week we saw how the fortunes of Esther and Mordecai were turned around dramatically. Uh, And all of the Jews... Their fortune was turned, turned around as well. Turned around from being a terrible tra- tragedy, a, a mass murder of, pe- of Jews across the, the empire to being a joyful victory. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, we see this language of the turning around being, being used. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables had turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. And later in verse 22, it says, their sorrow was turned to joy. So let's follow the last three chapters of Esther and see how the story concludes. And and what it says and what this peripatea shape, this this U shape, means for us today. At the start of chapter 8, we see that not only did Haman get executed instead of Mordecai, but Xerxes gave Esther... Haman's whole estate. This poor Jewish orphan girl has now become a wealthy queen. Also, Xerxes elevated Mordecai to the role of chief advisor or like kind of like prime minister, the position once held by Haman. But despite this happy turn of, uh, of events and this happy reversal of fortune, there still was the matter of Haman's official edict to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. This still had to be 
officially dealt with by royal decree. Haman was now dead, but the decree was not dead. So Esther pleaded for Xerxes to put it to an end. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Esther is fully out now as a Jew. She is standing up for my people, she says. And by describing Haman as son of um, Hamadatha, the Agagite, she's bringing up an ancient conflict here uh, between the Jews and the Amalekites. Haman is a descendant of King Agag, king of the Amalekites, um, who were the traditional enemies of the Israelites. And in the Jewish liturgy of the Purim, which I'll talk a bit more about later, they read out Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 to 19, which fills in the, some of the backstory of Haman and Mordecai's hostility towards each other, as it describes Amalek's attack on Israel and contains the mandates to blot out the memory of Amalek and to not forget. Anyway, so in response to Esther's request, Xerxes gave the authority to Mordecai to oversee the writing of a new royal decree that would be sealed with the king's signet ring. This new decree was sent out to all the provinces and officials in Persia, in the, in the empire. And verse 8 shows us that there's a complicating factor here, which is that any edict signed by the king and with the seal of the king's ring could not be revoked. So you can't just say, well, we're going to undo an edict that we've just, we've just passed. And Haman's original instructions in the edict was that he gave permission for anybody to attack the Jews in the empire and to plunder their belongings. In other words, this was not instructions given just to the army, because if it was just given to the army, then it would be a lot easier to, to control things. But it was given to all the citizens of the empire. So... Mordecai and Esther devised a new edict that allowed the Jews to defend themselves. They had the right to assemble and protect themselves from their enemies. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, as it says in verses 11 and 12. Notice that language, destroy, kill and annihilate, the same language that Hamar used in his edict. So it was like a second king's edict to give the Jews a chance, give them the opportunity to assemble and to retaliate. So what was once a tragic story of Haman's edict against the Jews was now a happy and joyful story of Mordecai's edict in support of the Jews. They could organize themselves, they could stand against those who opposed them on that one special day. And Mordecai gave permission to the Jews to plunder their enemies so that if they had been plundered already, they could get their possessions back. There is a real reversal of fortune and this reversal of fortune is also visual in the story because in earlier chapters we saw Mordecai mourning and wailing and wearing sackcloth and ashes but then in this story we see him 
at, in chapter 8, wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. This was a visual image of the reversal of fortune. So you can see why this was a time of joy and celebration for all the Jews in Persia. Even Gentiles converted to Judaism because they just saw the success of the Jews and, and they feared them and pointed them to the God of the Jews. They had gone from weakness to power and it was so dramatic. It had this influence. The people who had once been bewildered when Haman's instructions went out were now rejoicing when Mordecai's new instructions came out and they feasted with banquets. And of course we know from the last three talks and from reading through Esther that Esther is full of banquets. The the book of Esther started with banquets to celebrate the king's wealth and power and it ends with banquets to celebrate God's power and wisdom to provide the courageous Esther and to provide salvation. The story of Esther conforms to much wider themes in the Bible, especially themes of wisdom and foolishness and themes about God's favour on those who fear him. If we look to Proverbs, we see some good examples of this. Wise sayings that speak encouragement to Esther and Mordecai. Look at these Proverbs. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Good judgment wins favour, but the way of the unfaithful leads to their destruction. All who are prudent act with knowledge, but fools expose their folly. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. See, in the Proverbs... The ordinary events of daily life are seen as revelations of God's care for us, his providence in our lives. And those who fear the Lord are those who will live in step with God's providential wisdom. Esther and Mordecai are like living examples of these proverbs. They fear the Lord and show great wisdom. But the happy reversal is actually... Not so much they're doing, although it looks like it. It's really God's doing. Everything that happens in this story is God's plan. He works through his people in complex and unexpected ways to achieve his purposes. In the book of Proverbs, the, the, the wise flourish and the foolish suffer. And we see that Haman suffered because of his foolishness and wickedness. Peter Adam points out in his book, on Esther, that Haman's sins are pride, ambition, manipulation, bribery, malice, lies, slander, and planned genocide. And so he ultimately fails, but Esther and Mordecai succeeds. So for us today, as we read Esther, we can see the story as a way to encourage us to trust in God and to live lives in fear of him. We, can, we should live in wisdom so that we can share in his protection We should trust him even when it seems like he is hidden and silent. And if the evil and wickedness of those who oppose us is not put right in this life, we can trust God will do it in the new heavens and the new earth. But what we shouldn't do is universalize the story of Esther. 
while God can defend and rescue his people now from death, at other times he lets his people suffer and does not rescue them despite all their prayers. So what do we make of that? Well, God has given us the book of Psalms, which gives us prayers to pray on different occasions. The Bible is aware of this dynamic that we are faced with as God's people. So, for example, if, if God's people are rescued, well, we can praise God with Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands from east and west, from north and south. And if God's people are being persecuted and they are suffering and they have prayed and fasted for deliverance but with no response, then we can pray with Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. God may not always answer our prayers the way we hope, and this might cause us to cry out in despair and make us feel isolated from him. But we need to remember that he has given us the resources to pray and lament in those times as we wait for Jesus to return and end all the suffering and right all the wrongs. Well, if we go to Esther chapter 9, we see the sorrow turn to joy for the Jews in the Persian Empire. It begins... On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And then it says in verse 2, the enemies had become afraid of them. So this is all about the Jews fighting back. We see the Jews defending themselves. And they only attacked those who attacked them. And they had the upper hand, it says. What made them so powerful was that Mordecai had, was now the prime minister and he had all of Persia's uh, officials and armies working to help them. So all those who had opposed and oppressed them in Persia were killed, up to 500 people in Susa. And Xerxes once again asked Esther what her request was. He would grant her anything, says in verse 12. And so Esther asked permission to repeat the edict of that day tomorrow. And the king granted her request. So the Jews rounded up Haman's uh, sons and put them to death and then they killed 300 more in Susa and then 75,000 more in the wider provinces. Now the numbers of Persians killed by the Jews are significant and it might be off-putting to you. You might read this and go, well this is a bit of a sour ending to the story, this bloodthirsty revenge. Well one thing we need to remember is that in ancient times, including in the Old Testament, um, accounts of war, the numbers cited were often exaggerated for political purposes. The death tolls were intentionally rounded up if it's about the enemies and not really discussed if it's about your own side. While they were prone to hyperbole though, the victory still occurred and the wars still occurred, the fighting still occurred. God did deliver his chosen people from from those who with hardened hearts refused to make peace with God's people. And it says each time they killed their enemies that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now they were allowed to take the plunder, as I've already said, and Haman's original edict allowed their enemies to take the Jews' plunder. So why didn't the Jews lay their hands on the plunder? 
To understand this, we have to remember that the conflict between Haman and the Jews can be traced back in the Bible to the conflict between King Saul and the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites and Mordecai was a descendant of Saul. In 1 Samuel, it says that Saul sinned by taking plunder from the Amalekites. And now the Jews, centuries later, were performing a kind of righting of that wrong by not taking the plunder from those who attacked them. So as we read this, again, the violence is troubling, and we should not read this and make the mistake that it is endorsing violence for God's people against their enemies. At the most, you might argue that Esther defends the right to resist the violation of human rights, especially under the threat of genocide, when see this way it aligns itself with the principles of the United Nations, doesn't it? Uh, the the United Nations Declaration of 1948, which permits the use of violence in defence of self, family members and neighbours. And we need to remind ourselves that the Jews do not have permission to attack other ethnic groups, only those who are set on massacring them in this story. You see, while it seems like in the Old Testament there are lots and lots of examples of God's people committing violence against their enemies... Almost every time in the Old Testament, God does not commission the Israelites to attack attack people groups because they are their enemies. The only one or two examples of this are when their enemies are committing widespread national heinous sins, such as child sacrifice, and God wants to wipe them out and destroy them because of their evil. Most of the time, however, God tells the Israelites to live peaceably under the authority of the day, until the time God decides to do something about their situation. And also, as we think about our own ethic, our ethic of violence for for us as Christians, we have to remember that as we do this, as we form this, we have to look to Jesus and his very high standards. Jesus who said to turn the other cheek. Jesus who who told his disciples not to exercise judgment on their enemies but to hand all judgment over to God. Jesus told Peter to put down the sword when he tried to fight off the Roman soldier at his arrest. Jesus modelled non-violent resistance. And so this should sober any impulse the Christian has towards using violence to fight back. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 19, citing the Old Testament law, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, For it is written, it it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So following in Jesus' teaching, Paul teaches us to overcome evil with good in Romans 12.21. I'm not saying that the Bible makes no allowance for retaliation in times of war, but we do need to hold out all of God's teaching in front of us as we make our mind up. As we just learned in our series on 1 Peter, Peter writes that God did not protect his own son from persecution and death, and we, like him, should entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2 verse 23. We can say it is right for Christians who are appointed to administer justice as agents of the government to do this. And it is also important for persecuted Christians around the world to try and avoid persecution. 
but persecuted Christians should not administer revenge on their persecutors. You see, for the Jews, when they, th- when they celebrate the story of Esther and Mordecai, really, they're not celebrating the revenge, they're celebrating the peace that God brought about for them. And this is really what Purim is about, the festival of Purim. It's about the reversal of fortune that the Jews experienced, the sorrow that turned to joy, which led to the establishment of this festival. The Jews in Susa gathered together on the 13th and 14th day of the 12th month, and then on the 15th day they rested and they feast together in joy, it says in chapter 9, verse 18. And the rural Jews around the empire turned the 14th day into a day of feasting and giving gifts to one another. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent <coughs> letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So as well as the food celebration and the presence for some of the of the time they should fast and lament as well it says in verse 31 and give gifts to the poor and the celebration is called purim because Haman had cast a lot or the pure p-u-r to determine the date of their destruction but when this lot was brought before the king he reversed the lot of course as we know so it should not fall on the jews but on Haman and his sons and those who opposed the jews And this would lead to peace for God's people. So modern Jews, the other name that they give the festival of Purim is topsy-turvy. As we finish this sermon and as we finish this Esther series, we should remember this topsy-turvy story or this peripatia shape of the story, the story of Esther. And remember that it's actually an echo of the larger biblical story. Because the whole Bible has a U-shape. Humanity seems lost in our transgressions and sins, but then God makes us alive in Christ. And it's got a U-shape in all kinds of different ways, and most importantly, it has that when we think about our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who was being tortured and then killed on a Roman cross, and then God rose him from the dead. God has given us the story of Esther because she points us to Jesus, who suffered and was glorified, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and be saved from our destruction, saved into an eternal peace with God. So as Psalm 107 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south.